And a very good morning, Rabbi Hirsch. This is unusual. We usually record in the evenings, but call me last night. You were stricken with the flu, and you still have the flu. But nevertheless, are most nefesh for the listeners not to give them a week without a podcast. So we're keeping a safe distance, obviously. So just want to start off by saying a big thank you to all the listeners around the world who contributed very, very nicely to the campaign. We really appreciate the messages and the donations, which will definitely help us keep going and improving in the future. So thank you for that. So welcome to a one-off presentation. This is for Hanukkah, the title of which is What Happened to the Chashmonoim, which I guess makes it very related to Hanukkah history in general. Meanwhile, we are continuing to get loads of questions, again, from around the world, feedback about the origins of Christianity series. Seems like, as I said last week, people are very curious about the subject and uh, they had many questions. We'll try and get to some of that at the end today, if that's okay with you. Yes, I would like to uh, echo that sentiment of the all the people that I spoke to over the phone and that I corresponded with who contributed to our fundraising campaign at the JLE. Very much appreciated. Now, I want to mention that this podcast is in memory of Moshe ben Rachamim, whose yard site is this Shabbos, 23rd Kislev, and in memory of Luisa Arias, whose yard site is the first night of Hanukkah and I also wanted to mention the organization Jewish Workshops which provides online classes and mentors including those from our very own Rabbi Akiva Tetz and for more information head over to jewishworkshops.com or jewishworkshops.org and see for yourself. Okay, so we all know that the Hashmonoim, their dynasty, are at the heart of the Hanukkah Wars and the victory. What is less known is that they carried on ruling for the next 100 years. And even less known is that they then disappear totally. Okay, so what happened to the Hashmonoim? Okay, so it needs a short historical introduction about the Second Temple, which stood around two and a half thousand years ago. The Jews had been exiled to Bovel, to Babylonia, and then the Persians took over, and it was ultimately the Persian Empire that allowed the Jews back to build the Second Temple. Ezra and Nehemiah lead the Jews back, um, although many Jews remain in Bavel. But in the year 3448 Jewish years, around 330 BCE, which is a thousand years after the Exodus, the Greeks under Alexander the Great conquer, destroy the Persian Empire, and as a result, they take over the land of Israel. And the Greeks are unusual, because unlike the Babylonians and Persians, they provide advances in many fields, in literature and mathematics, and Jews have always been attracted to education, uh, the various sciences, so the ancient Greeks are at the same time a bonus and a threat because if they're happy to offer their discoveries with no strings attached it's good for the Jews and this is so to speak seen in the initial meeting between Alexander the Great and Shimon HaTzadik the high priest and the leader of the Jewish people but the moment they insist that their philosophy and their culture is the package is the complete way of life. At that moment, it becomes a threat to Judaism. It's assimilation rather than education. Yeah. 
And this is what therefore takes place in Eretz Yisrael eventually. They are there for 150 years. And at that time, 150 years later, the Greeks now impose their philosophy and way of life on the Jews. And a war breaks out, a war based on ideology, not territory. And therefore, the Hanukkah narrative. We know that during these wars, four of the five sons of Matisio end up dying or being killed. And eventually, the Greeks sue for peace with the only remaining Maccabee, Shimon. He is given limited independence and rule over a Judean state by the Greeks. But there's a big but. And that is there has now begun within this family, within the dynasty of the Hashmanoim, what you could call an interest, perhaps even a desire for rule, for conquest, and not just as a result of a religious crisis. And this decline would have fatal consequences, not just for their own family, but for the entire Jewish people. The first to feel the sharp side of it was Shimon himself, who was murdered by his own son-in-law in a bid for power. And in fact, only one of Shimon's sons, Jochen Hurkanus, survives, and he will take over. And like many in the family, both before and after, he will be the Kohen Godel, the high priest. But he is in charge of military strategy, even though he's not a king. And under his guidance, all the Philistine and Samaritan cities, which the Syrian Greeks had taken, the Seleucids, are reconquered. He also destroys Shechem, which had the temple of the Kutim, the Samaritans on Mount Gerizim. And they had always been a danger and a source of trouble to the Jews. In addition, Jochenen also subjugated the Idumeans, who were non-Jewish neighbors of the Jewish country. But in his zeal for Jewish religion, he forced these Idumeans to give up idolatry and accept Judaism. And he took this step without the advice of the sages, and it would have grave consequences many years later, particularly with one of the Idumeans, Herod. But Jochenen's successors did bring economic security to a nation that had experienced 30 years of war. And we can really understand why he felt the need to upkeep and even expand his army and territory. Although shortly before his death, after decades of being faithful to the Beis Amikdash, Jochenon Hurkanus strayed from the path of his fathers. Just to be clear, we're talking about Jochenon Kohen Godel. That's referred to that, in the Gemara. In the Talmud, yes. So what happens with him is as follows. The increasing wealth of the people and the influence of foreign cultures surrounding the Jewish country caused the Jews to look around at other cultures, and that creates several groupings with differing interpretations and practices of Judaism. Now, 
the Hellenists by now no longer play any central part in Jewish life. It is now the Sadducees, the Tzedukim, followers of Tzodok, who had once been a pupil of Antignus Ishsechai, and this Tzodok taught that only what was written in the written law and the books of Moses, without the benefit of the Masera of the oral law, only that was to be observed, which obviously had a real impact on halacha. We're talking about a time where the Sanhedrin is authorized to carry out the death penalty, no? Right. So, therefore, part of the impact is that people can be put to death when commandments are misinterpreted, which happened. Now, it tends to be that in secular history, they downplay the vindictiveness and the fact that these Sadducees were trespassers to an existing religion. So secular history grants them equal footing historically and religiously with the religious group who were called the Pharisees, the Purushim. And in order to do so, they have to invent the existence of the Pharisees as being a Hanukkah and post-Hanukkah development. And Therefore, they would postulate that much of the oral law was allegedly created then, although they struggled to explain how a non-wealthy localized group would have attracted the broad support that the Pharisees did. In fact, if I would quote from a book on the topic, it says about the Pharisees, their beginnings are somewhat murky. They may have emerged from, they don't have a narrative, whereas in reality, the Sadducees were a reforming element to existing Judaism. And this new element attracted many wealthy Hellenists. Being rich and influential, it was easy for them to extend their influence over the priesthood, over the Besamikdosh, and dominate the Sanhedrin through political power. Unfortunately, Yochanan was surrounded by them. And even after serving for many years faithfully as a Kohen Gadol, he goes over to the Sadducees towards the end of his life. However, before the end of his life, he decreed that his wife would take over rule of the country. He saw in her an element that would be able to give the country stability. And he granted his son, Yehuda, who had distinguished himself as the leader of the Jewish army, the high priesthood. Yehuda, however, was far from satisfied with this arrangement of his father's. And as soon as Yochanan died, Yehuda has his mother and brothers thrown into prison. And all this is only two generations down the line from Hanukkah itself. From, right, from Matisio, Kohen Gadol, yes. You know, this is the adage that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's making its way through the ranks, tragically, of the Hashem Now, this Yehuda was also a friend of Greek culture and of the Tzedukim, but he rules for only one year. In 103 BCE, he died childless. His widow, 
released his elder brother Alexander Yanai from prison and in accordance with Jewish law that if a man dies childless the widow is able to marry the brother in uh, Yibum which is a biblical commandment she marries her brother-in-law and Yanai succeeds his brother to the throne he was even further removed from terror and from piety than his brother or father but since his main aims were military and political, he initially allows his pious wife, who is known in the secular world as Salome Alexandra or Shlomtzion, to play a large role in domestic policy, particularly in the day-to-day life of the Jews of the kingdom. And she worked closely with the Pharisees, particularly the leaders. Rabbi Shimon ben Shetach was her brother. And the other leader was Rabbi Shur ben Gamla. And these two sages instituted a nationwide public school system of learning for the youth. And the Talmud tells us that if it was not for Rabbi Shur ben Gamla, Torah may have been forgotten from Eretz Yisrael. So we contextualize statements that we find in the Talmud being placed in the historical narrative because of the effects of the Tzedekim. And this was the first time in history there was an official Jewish learning system? Until then, it was, and in fact it still remains, that the biblical mitzvah is v'shinantom levonecha, as we say in the Shema, that you should teach your children. At home. But now it becomes institutionalized because of the necessity, because of the inroads of foreign elements into Judaism. Wow. Now, Yana himself is constantly looking for military success. He hires professional soldiers from all parts of the world, and he becomes involved in the struggle between the well-known Queen Cleopatra and her son Ptolemy, whom she had thrown out of Egypt. He had become the king of Cyprus. He now wanted to gain a foothold around Judea. So Yanai initially concluded peace with Ptolemy. In secret, he, Yanai, that is, entered into negotiations with Cleopatra, who hated her son, and her armies, ironically, led by uh, Egyptian Jewish generals, defeated Ptolemy's troops. So Yanai returns from a successful military expedition. Now, these Sadducees, who had been ousted from all influence in the country, they're waiting for an opportunity to turn the king against the Pharisees. The first thing they do is they make him aware of the extent of the influence of the Purushim domestically. And they now appeal to the king's vanity, telling him that he has the right to occupy both the high priesthood and the kingship, knowing that the Purushim, that the Pharisees would protest. And as expected, in public, he makes this declaration. And in public, one of the sages stands up and approach, reproaches, really, Alexander Yanai, which is a famous line in the Gomorrah. And once again, we're contextualizing it within history. And he never forgave this insult. And he becomes a bitter enemy of the Pharisees. They, in turn, refused to submit to Sadducee rulings and ideology. And unfortunately, his battle experiences in the field were now used against his own fellow Jews. 
Sukkot in the Beis Hamikdash was the first occasion of this mass assault. He provokes his own subjects by publicly showing his contempt for halacha during the temple services. The crowds react angrily. Remember, he is the priest in the temple. And when they react, his army intervenes and 6,000 Jews are put to death in the ensuing slaughter. And from that point on, the king persecuted the, the Pharisees mercilessly. His brother-in-law, Shimon ben Shetach, has to flee and Shlomzion has to withdraw from public life. And a war which was once fought ideologically between the Greeks and the Jews now becomes a war fought between the king and wealthy Sadducees versus the people and the sages. And for six years, the people of Judea suffer at the hands of their own king. How many people were, were killed at that time? At least 50,000 Jews wow. die in this conflict, an inter-Jewish conflict, a civil war. And in desperation, the people made a treaty with the Syrian king, Demetrius, who attacks Yanai on their behalf. Yanai fled the battlefield and takes refuge in the wilderness. And at that stage, the leaders of the Pharisees uh, sort of reconsider. After all, he is a Hashmanoi. And they decided to leave their deal with Demetrius. But on Yanai's return to power, he imprisons 800 sages and tortures them. He kills their wives and children in front of them and then kills them too. And by the way, the, the sources for all of these things are not simply, so to speak, Jewish, or at least uh, Talmudic sources. I mean, Josephus obviously echoes all of these. Uh, the Book of Maccabees provides the background for all of this. And there are external sources, Greek and eventually Roman sources for this. So this is agreed across the board. This type of thing you would find in secular history as well. And eventually, after a 27-year reign, his long-awaited death takes place. Is he one of the Hashmonoim buried in the family Kvarim near Modi'in? So uh, the answer to that is yes, the Chachomim allowed that to happen. How come? Once he died, they decided it would be for the good of the country to not deal with the past as a you know continuing issue they looked forward to the future and in fact uh, they were correct to do so because uh, Shlom Tzion HaMalka is now reigning in Judea this is uh, 76 BCE and as a result the, the persecutions the murders that had been rampant under Yanai come to an end and she will rule for nine years and these become the happiest periods of the Second Temple. She brought back the leaders of the Pharisees, and there is tranquility back in Eretz Yisrael. The Tzedukim who had dominated the temple service in the Sanhedrin were removed, and she arrested and put on trial all of those who had advised Yanai to put the 800 sages to death. 
Now, she still built a strong army made up largely of Jewish soldiers supplemented by mercenaries. But unlike her husband, her goal was not personal fame and military conquest, but rather to safeguard the security of her country. So she had a reason to do so internally, which takes you back to the times of the early Hashmanoim. Wow. And who were her children? So we'll get there in a moment. In fact, they impose themselves towards the end of her life. Because after Shimon Meshetach died, there was no one capable of taking his place. And she has two sons. The older, Hurkanus, was a, a weak character, but more humble than his younger brother. And he actually served as the Kohen Gottel. He was appointed by his mother. Aristobulus her younger son was a different type altogether. He was ambitious, and that had prevented Shlomtian from appointing him to a position of power. And it is once again the Tzedukim who will bring misfortune upon the Jews, this time long-term misfortune. They realized his ambitions and equally realized that they could gain power by winning him over. He responds positively to their overtures and demanded that his mother turn over all the fortresses in the country during her lifetime or that he would seize power in the alternative. And he now is given these fortresses and he uses the, the fortunes that are stored there to build up an army. And even though the Pharisee leaders protested vigorously to the queen, she was by then ill. She lacked the power to act against her son. And the Chachamim realize that if they use force, it's just going to lead to another civil war. And therefore, they take the decision to withdraw from affairs of state and turn their energies to strengthening the inner life and education of the people. Unfortunately, their forecasts of civil war will happen nonetheless. Because no sooner had his mother died than Aristobulus marches against Hurkanus, who is now nominally the leader of the Jewish people. And there is a battle at Yerichai, and the better-trained troops of Aristobulus easily defeat the soldiers of Hurkanus. There's two brothers here. Hurkanus fled to Yerushalayim. Realizing his position, he makes a peace treaty with his brother as long as he remains Kohen Gadol. So Aristobulus can be king. And if this would have lasted, it would have allowed the Jewish country to continue. But Judea was not destined to live in peace. At this moment, enter Antipater, a corrupt and unscrupulous Idumean, who we'd mentioned earlier, who had his design on becoming the, the strongman behind Yanai's throne. In fact, he hoped that after the king's death, he would gain control over Eretz Yisrael. And this peace treaty which the brothers had made was not to his liking because Aristobulus wouldn't need him. So he persuades um, Hurkanus to break the truce between the brothers 
and bring the help of Aretes, the king of the Arabs in the south. They promised Aretes 12 Jewish cities if he would join the war on Aristobulus. And the Arab king is only too happy to comply. He brings a huge army against Yerushalayim. Aristobulus is in a heavily defensive fortress, which is the city of Yerushalayim. And you have Aristobulus on the inside and Aretes and Hyrcanus on the outside. Now, you've got to understand what this means. You have two brothers, descendants of Matisio Coingaldel, trying to kill each other within sight of a functioning base Hamikdash. Right? It's just, uh, it is almost beyond. It's hard to understand. Yeah, beyond belief. And it's now that the growing might of the Roman Empire began to make itself felt, especially in the Middle East under the leadership of the Roman general Pompey. So there is a stalemate in this siege, and in the year 63 BCE, both brothers turned to him for aid. In fact, they would both appear personally before him in Damascus, and they ask him to intervene. Aristobulus tries to win Pompey onto his side by bribing him, and Hurricane stresses that he has a rightful claim to the throne. So the first thing the Roman general does is he orders Aretes to return to his land. Aretes isn't going to take on the might of the Roman Empire. He goes home. And Pompey then delays giving his decision. Aristobulus is suspicious of his intentions, and he begins to prepare himself to, you know, for war. Um, Pompey now uses this as an excuse. He marches into Judea, almost unprotected, at the head of his legions, and he subdues most of the country very easily. Basically, only Yerushalayim withstands his attack and does so for three months. And the siege ends on Yom Kippur when the Jews were engaged in tefillah, in prayer and fasting as the war continues. Difficult for us to see the two things being in one place. But that's what's happening in Yerushalayim. Pompey enters the Beis Amikdosh, and he is surprised not to find any images there. Remember, he comes from a pagan nation, and he is impressed by the service, impressed enough that he didn't touch the temple treasures and allows the service to continue. But he deprives Hurcanus of the throne and leaves him only with a title high priest, although he would now have little influence in the affairs of state. Pompey, however, realizes that any Jewish leader, especially one with ancestral links to power, would remain a threat. So he appoints Antipater the Idumean as his guardian, knowing that the Idumean's loyalty would be to Rome and not to Jerusalem. At the same time, Aristobulus and his entire family are taken captive to Rome, and Judea now loses her liberty for which the Maccabeans had fought hard to create, and it is the descendants of the Maccabees themselves who are responsible, purely, totally. Goodness. So now at this point, everything's under Roman rule. Yes. So what Pompey does, the coastal cities like Gaza and Jaffa and Ashdod, 
as well as the Transjordan and all of the Shomron is annexed to the new Roman province of Syria. The two places which are strongly Jewish are the north of the country, the Galil, and Yerushalayim to the extent that the Romans didn't incorporate them in the same way. And these two would be the centers of Jewish life between now and the destruction of the, of the temple. And these were cut off from each other by the Shomron, the you two mean areas. The Galil of, and, yes, so yeah. in actual, they're not contiguous, and that weakens them further. They're obviously somewhat under Roman rule, but they have a very Jewish presence. Now, the Hashemnoim hadn't given up hope yet. Uh, the oldest son of Aristobulus managed to escape from Rome. He returns to Judea, and he finds many supporters who consider him the rightful heir to the throne. And he gathers a large army, probably 10,000 Jews, to fight against the Romans. We relegate the rebellion against the Romans to the Hurban, to what happens, you know, in around 70 CE. But 120 years before then, there would be uprisings. And by the way, this goes back to answering the question that we left off with last week. You know, the idea that there were two Yeshus, that there were different rebels, political rebels, spiritual rebels. You can understand that this was a time of tremendous upheaval on many different fronts. It was a very, very uncertain time for the Jews. Well, So he has this large army, but he's defeated. You can't overthrow the Romans, and many Jewish lives are lost. And over the next 20 years, there will be several attempts made to regain Judean independence. All of them are quelled. But the rebellion which Alexander, the son of Aristobulus, brings about proved to the proconsul Gabinius that despite conquest, this Jewish spirit of independence hadn't yet been weakened. The ambitious Antipater advises Gabinius to strip the Sanhedrin of all real authority, which was done in the year 57 BCE, which is the year 3704 Jewish years. And he divides the country into five provinces, which effectively decentralizes authority away from the Sanhedrin in Yerushalayim. Now, in the year 44 BCE, Julius Caesar was assassinated by Brutus and Cassius, right? And beware of the Ides of March, uh, A2 Brutus. All of, this, all of this has an effect on what's going on in the Middle East. We don't have time to go into the, the whole story and all the, the bits and pieces. So Caesar was alive throughout this whole conquest. Yes, and, and you have the creation of the original triumvirate with Pompey and Caesar. Then you have a second triumvirate. A lot of Roman history involves the land of Israel, but, you know, not our topic for today. Maybe we'll do the Shakespeare series. Well, no, it actually is very related to the Hurban and to, to the eventual destruction and understanding why and how and when. But either way, Brutus and Cassius are the assassins of Caesar. Cassius knew there would now be a fight with the presumptive heirs of Caesar. So he comes to Syria. Syria, remember, now also controls Eretisrael, most of it. And the cost of paying and outfitting an army would require enormous expenditure. So he imposes exorbitant taxes and he 
loots wherever he can, including the Besamikdosh itself. And he sold the inhabitants of four Judean towns into slavery to raise money. Now, Antipater and his sons, always looking for ways to enhance their own power and wealth, come to his aid. And they are given the office of tax collection by Cassius, which they pursue with great efficiency and cruelty and collect great sums of money because anyone who would not pay was sold as a slave. And Antipater now appoints his four sons to government or governorship positions within Eretz Israel. Herod becomes the governor in the north and another one the governor in over Jerusalem. Antipater would be poisoned by persons unknown around 43 BCE, but his equally ruthless son Herod is granted the title of King of Judea by Rome. Could have been poisoned by one of his children. Absolutely, that would not be unheard of, yeah. So how long before the destruction of the Second Temple is this? Around 100 years. And Herod will rule for 32 years, from 36 to 4 BCE, around then. That's how we know, by the way, going back to the origins of Christianity, when Yeshu has to have been born by, because he is officially born during Herod's reign. And the Jews endured from this tyrant. They didn't even dare protest because of the fear of ruthless retaliation, which took place. The pupils of Shammai particularly were attacked by Herod. So openly, no one opposes him. But to root out any intrigue, he creates a network of spies and informants whose task was to report any hostile move or criticism against him. How old was Herod when the Second Temple was destroyed? Herod was no longer alive by then. He dies 70 years before its destruction. Now, Josephus describes what life was like under Herod. He says, many were caught by these informers and brought openly or under cover to one of Herod's fortresses and killed in a gruesome manner, the like of which was not heard of even in ancient times. Those who were left alive envied the dead because of their constant fear for their families, their property, and their very lives. Now, this Herod marries a Hasmonean descendant, Miriam. And when Herod became king, there are four members of the Hashmnoi family still alive. Hurkanus, who is now aged, his daughter Alexandra, and her two children, the queen Miriam and her brother Aristobulus. Hurkanus was no longer fit to be the Kohen Godel because of a physical defect that had been inflicted upon him. So there remains only one eligible candidate from the family, Aristobulus. Now, Herod desisted at first from naming him as the Kohen Godel, and in, has a Babylonian Jew instead as the Kohen Godel, but Aristobulus' mother didn't desist until her son was made Kohen Godel, or grandson, and on Sukkot. Aristobulus made his first appearance as the Kohen Godel, and he has a very aristocratic bearing, 
Clearly, within the family, there was this trait, and it affects the masses. They greet him with joy, and Herod is filled with resentment, jealousy, and a short while later, he invites his brother-in-law to one of his palaces in, in Yerichai, and he has him murdered by drowning. And then he murders his wife's grandfather, the aged Hyrcanus, the former king and high priest, in case he becomes a competitor for the throne. And then in 29 BCE, he kills his own wife, Miriam, on a suspicion of conspiracy and infidelity. He then kills his mother-in-law, her mother, Alexandra. Charming fellow. He was a, a uh, literally what we read about happening in Rome amongst the emperors was visited on the Jewish state. Right? This is a period of history that people are very unaware of. Yeah. And that left only two new members of the dynasty, Herod's own two children by Miriam. And he now feels that by virtue of their mother's birth, they, you know, appeal to the popular sentiment, which he'd never been able to do. The people hated him. So gradually his mind is filled with suspicion against them. And these two young princes are charged with treachery. And after a travesty of a trial, they are strangled in prison in 7 BCE. Wow. So there's no Hashmanaim left. So the Gemara tells us in Baba Basra that there's one surviving Hashmanai, a young girl who Herod now wants to take as his queen. And knowing who he was, she jumped from a rooftop to her death. And from then on, the sages ruled that anyone who tries to pass them off as a Hashmanai should be deemed a non-Jewish slave because Herod, who tried to pretend that he was a Hashmanoi, had been a servant of the family of the Hashmanoim. Wow, the glory of the Hashmanoim just ended so tragically. This brought an end to everything. It's a shocking insight, but yes. Wow, that was a real history lesson, Rabbi Hirsch. What, (laughs) What can we learn from all of this? So, okay, listen, there is a famous Ramban in Vayachi, where he elaborates on the prohibition for any other tribe other than Yehuda. There's a prohibition for them to assume the monarchy. And from what we have seen, this prescient comment highlights that the drive for monarchy can become the goal more than the priesthood itself. And that creates, first of all, a spiritual negativity and a corruption. It seeps through the bones of these people who want power for power's sake. But it's critical to point out that it's precisely during these years that the foundations of Teresha Balpeh were laid. The Mishnah, Shammai, and Hillel learned and taught while these civil wars were raging. It was an unbelievable creation of oral law. And many of these students were put to death. Equally, we now learn, we have now a clearer understanding when we speak of sinas chinom, hatred being responsible for the destruction of the second temple. It's not relegated to barbed remarks or protests. You know, the Gomorrah in Yuma tells us that a high priest left the temple and the people followed him and then they met Shmaya and Aftalian, who were actually descendants of converts to Judaism and the high priest insults them and they respond, you know, you might be a descendant 
descendant of Aaron, but you don't follow in his footsteps. So Sinaschenom during the Second Temple led to three civil wars between Jews. Jews killing Jews, in some cases because of a war over Judaism, between the Sadducees and the Purushim, and in some cases because of power, just purely for power. And when we describe the Roman exile, we don't only mean the actual destruction and the years beyond it, but the entire Roman period, which starts 130 years earlier, Golos starts back then, as is caused by Sinaschenom, between two brothers, descendants of a family that fought for Judaism. And they were the, the, the apex of the Messiris Nefesh for it. So one of the things to bear in mind at Hanukkah when reflecting on the battles is basically there are no guarantees. You know, what my ancestors were, either way, doesn't ultimately guarantee what I will be. I am the sum total of my own decisions and actions. And if I hold on to moral values in the you know, especially in the face of uh, vicissitudes, that makes me a moral individual. Right. So the clarification of chinom being a baseless hatred is because power has no relevance. And yep, it's baseless. Absolutely. Okay. Wow. To end off, I just want to go back to a question that we received on Christianity, and this was asked in many different forms, but it boils down to the same question. What motivated Paul? And was he a secret plant by the rabbis to move Christianity away from having any Jewish connection? There's many, many who have even approached me in the streets to ask this. So the short answer is, it's difficult to know. Was it a drive for power? Was he a secret plant to move Christianity to a place of paganism where no one would mistake it with Judaism? No one really knows. It, it, it's difficult to crawl back and, and find out. Right. Just to mention, as we said, this podcast is in memory of Moshe ben Rachamim and Luisa Arias. And we are now going to take a two-week break. We are back on the fast day of Asara Batavis for a two-part series of the Holocaust, the second part of which is still available for dedication. Well, thank you very much again, Rabbi Hirsch, for your commitment in coming in. 